0: hello welcome back to loki's library and if you are new here welcome i am your librarian katrina and this is where i'm reading through the enormous library books you see behind me and then i give you a quick synopsis and tell you what i think about them so if you like books just aren't sure what to read next hit that subscribe button like and share my videos and let me know what you think in the comments this week's book of the week hit my radar from the joe rogan experience He was interviewed, I want to say initially with Graham Hancock, but I could be mistaken that or misremembering it, but it is, um, the immortality key, the secret history of the religion with no name by Brian C. Murarescu. The accompanying cocktail is called sacred nectar. It is two ounces of honey whiskey, one ounce of Amaro, a half ounce of honey syrup, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. So let's do this. I'm going to start by saying this book surprised me on many levels and in all the best ways. Uh, In many ways, it reads like a mystery novel. He starts with the basic premise that a little-known book initially published in like 1978 called The Road to Eleusis by Robert Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman and Karl Ruck was quite accurate. The basic summary of that book, which I haven't read so far, so I'm just kind of running off of the synopsis provided by Mirarescu in his book, uh, is that the key to the ancient Eleusinian mysteries is drug beer uh, and mirror runs down why that premise is accurate and then asks the logical question of what happened next and, th- and that's where i started being taken by surprise Two honey whiskey is some really good stuff if you haven't had it before um sh- the recipe called for a different brand i'm just using jack daniels not sponsored tennessee honey whiskey I had to go out and buy a bottle because the last bottle we had, which was a gift from a friend, my husband and I slowly worked our way through it, and now it's no more because it's good stuff. So using his research to really do kind of a deep dive on the pagan continuity hypothesis, uh, which according to Wikipedia, the witch cult hypothesis, which is part of it, was discredited. But after reading this book, I actually feel like the pagan continuity hypothesis is highly credible. Now, if you're not familiar with it, well, I mean, actually, you probably are familiar with it. You just didn't know that that's what it was called. The pagan continuity hypothesis is kind of the belief that pagan traditions continued well into the Christian Catholic takeover of Europe simply by hiding in plain sight. So this is the, the Christmas begin in just being in December, despite historical evidence that Jesus would, was born in August. Uh, basically, it, Christmas was... Overwritten, overwrote the ancient Yule traditions or Saturnalian traditions, depending on which pagan cult or pagan beliefs you actually follow on to. So, stuff like that, where where things that are known to have pagan origins are part of Christian tradition now, that's part of the pagan continuity hypothesis. Now, it's not quite a theory. So, uh, uh, the scientific definition of a theory is something that essentially has not been disproven. So, there's no theory that yet replaces it. So it's it's you know the solid evidence it's reproducible so scientifically it's something that can be reproduced again and again no matter who runs the the numbers or data it's going to re- return the same results so this is still just a hypothesis but uh, Mureșcu does a pretty credible job of pulling it out of hypothesis and into theory so but he is still looking for the smoking gun and he and he freely admits that in his afterward now the first question to answer. the question of religion for the religion of no name is which came first beer or bread because the answer to that question changes the narrative of humanity significantly so the current popular hypothesis is that bread came first Um, it was because of the grain growth needed in bulk to bake bread that humanity went from being hunter-gatherers to farmers and so that spurred the agricultural revolution however during his search for everything, reached out to Dr. Martin Zarnkow, who is the head of research and development at the Vihenstepan Research Center for Brewing and Food Quality at the Technische Universität München, which he readily embraces beer as the first advance in food technology. And his logic is quite simple and quite sound. Uh, Beer is easier to make. And I'm going to explain that as soon as I pour the... uh, The honey syrup, which is what do you say, half ounce? Beer is easier to make. I'm a little surprised this one is shaken and not stirred. Typically, when you're adding a syrup like this that's really thick, you're going to shake it to really break it down, but this is to stir it. So I'm going to add the dashes of bitters, stir it, and we'll go from there. Two dashes. Modern beer obviously requires heat. Would not be easier to make than bread because both require heat to bake. Requires massive vats. It requires, you know, some some level of a distilling so that you can weed out any toxins. Original beer was probably a happy accident. The original hunter gatherer grabbed some barley for later eating. Maybe put it in water to make it easier to hold. The natural yeast on their hands combined with the water and barley grains, and a little time later, voila! You have a very basic beer. Probably tasted nasty as shit, but in the you know search for survival. Who cares, right? It's edible. It's not going to immediately kill you. Do my counting on camera here. It's edible. It's not going to immediately kill you. So basic beer. And it gives you this lovely floaty feeling, right? All by itself, that would be alcoholic, which would make the ancient hunter-gatherers quite happy and relaxed when they consume it. And I get that it's fashionable to assume that everybody born before the 20th century was obviously dumber than us because otherwise they would have been born in the 20th, 21st century, obviously. But really, our ancestors were quite smart. Uh, they were survivors. They had to be. They they knew what was good to eat and what wasn't. And when the invention of with with the invention of early beer, it wasn't long before they realized that if they wanted more of that lovely floating feeling, they would have to stay put in one place to grow more of what created that lovely floaty feeling. So, beer as the driving force behind the agricultural revolution is a theory I am, well in line with. I, I, I believe that. That makes more sense to me than bread. Because, let me, you know, let me stir this up. Almost done with my kitchen. And then I will have, hmm, oh, that's not too bad. Bigger stirring cups and not make such a mess out of my desk. Didn't take long for me to agree that the, the beer probably came first. Bread is very involved. You have to have time to sit down and hold the barley before you can bake it. Holing requires you to be stationary for a long period of time So you have to grind the barley, ber- barley berry from the hole. Then you have to figure out baking, how, you know, how do you, how, you know, what would make you figure this out, right? I mean, they already knew how to cook over campfires, but baking, baking over an open campfire takes a little bit more. So tossing barley into water and accidentally making beer is logically consistent with what is known about a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Namely, they were constantly on the move, so it had to be portable. Carrying around a grindstone is added weight for very little benefit, especially given the amount of barley you would have to carry with you to grind to make a loaf of bread. And then you'd have to be in one place for hours and hours and hours to grind it, versus a water jug that you throw some barley into and then bam, suddenly you have beer. So having accepted the headcanon that beer is what fueled the agricultural revolution, not bread, it's not that big of a leap to determine that ergotized beer also happened by happy accident. Why ergotized beer? Why an accident? Well, this is where Albert Hoffman's contribution to the road to Eleusis comes in. Hoffman, if you don't recognize the name, is the scientist who manufactured LSD from ergot back in 1938. This was all legal back then. They didn't have the... the um, You know, Nixon's war on drug was 40 years in the future at this point. And, and he was working for a laboratory. I don't remember which name, but it's in the book. But But ergot is a fungus that grows quite naturally on barley I think it grows on other grains too but barley is its most widely known companion plant it's so prevalent that Dr. Zarnkow recognizes it immediately and says it's dangerous for us meaning brewers it has to be pulled out immediately or it will ruin the beer and I mean like in the early stages so fortunately it floats so when they're you know dunking it any ergot's going to float to the top they immediately scoop it out and we're good to go Now I'm going to throw in a disclaimer here for my own legal safety, I am not advertising experimenting with manufacturing your own ergotized beer. Ergot can be quite deadly, and that's not an exaggeration. In the Middle Ages, they had a spout of what was called St. Anthony's fire, i.e. ergotism, and erupted through parts of Europe when ergot was not identified early enough and removed from the barley, resulting in ergot poisoning basically the alkalides and the ergot will build up in your system and cause uh cuts off blood flow to your extremity. extremities resulting in gangrene so if not treated early enough this can lead to literal amputation and yes death so do not experiment with making your own ergotized beer this is not a way to go this is not this is not the drug you want to experiment with because it can in fact kill you quite simply if you don't know what you're doing it's serious stuff don't go playing around looking for that cheap high it's not quite that simple But the intriguing part about Hoffman's contribution is not just that he concluded ergotized beer may have been the source of the Eleusinian mysteries, which we're going to discuss more in a little bit, but that he believed it was fully possible for the Eleusinian priestesses to manufacture LSD with what they had on hand in their ancient Greek kitchens. And this threw my Google search into what I'm sure will land me in an uncomfortable conversation with the DEA soonish while I try to to Google how to manufacture LSD also don't necessarily recommend this, um, but there it is. Google seemed to think you need a degree in organic chemistry and a full chem lab to make LSD, but that didn't quite jive with what Hoffman's saying, right? Hoffman, the guy who actually discovered LSD, believed it could be done quite easily in ancient Greece, meaning they didn't really have a full chem lab, all right? They, they didn't have the sparkling, clean, sterilized glass beakers. They had a kitchen. Let's try this. Oh my god. So the, the drink they used was called Kukion, and there is a lady who, um, I, I, I found her blog post and, and she like went over how you could make Kookieon. I think it, I think, I didn't actually read the whole thing, but I think it also included, you know, ergot, can't do it guys, my job requires me to not experiment with hallucinogenics, my day job, the one that actually pays my bills, this doesn't pay anything, I do this for funsies, so I can't actually try that, but this is pretty damn good. Honey whiskey is fully legal. Everything in this cocktail is fully legal. Drinking is still fully legal. They, they repealed prohibition. I'm going to enjoy my sacred nectar cocktail. This one's good. So anyways, I'm sure the DEA will come knocking soon, and I'll have to explain it was just a thought experiment. And because I'm a bad friend, I uh, asked a couple of my friends who were STEM majors in college and in all seriousness are genuinely smarter than me if they thought it would be possible to manufacture LSD 3,000 plus years ago looping them into my impending DEA investigation. Uh, they both said yes, by the way, and walked me through their logic. Uh, one even said Google was lying and she could probably manufacture LSD just in her kitchen with what she has. Not that she would, and she disclaimed that to me too. Not that I would, but I could totally make it in my kitchen right now. So... Just getting this on the record, none of us would, none of us have ever seen the inside of a jail cell, and we would all very much like to continue that positive trend in our lives. It was just a thought experiment, DEA, my dogs are very nice, please don't shoot them when you come to question me. So having satisfied my own curiosity on the matter of could they in fact have manufactured LSD 3,000 years ago, I continued reading the book, because that took a chunk of time out. I had to stop and, you know, text my friends. And almost the very next chapter included something that one of my super smart friends mentioned, uh, that I mentioned above, has said. It's that the dose makes the poison. Sometimes the dose is zero. It's instant death if you ingest this. Zero is not the dose of ergot. And given that, at a small necropolis in Catalonia, Spain, Las Veritas at the Pintia, they found at least one chalice and part of a human jawbone with ergot in them there is proof that the ancients were in fact consuming ergot. And the location, I feel like, was definitely ritualized. I mean he, he detailed it out in the book. It was a ritual location. So it, it seems like Miresco you know, traced how the Greece, Greek how a Greek cult could have traveled as far as west as Spain. Like we know for a fact that the the Phocians, the Vikings of the ancient world, They were a widely traveled band of Greeks, and they were known to settle in both France and Spain and other parts. So they could have traveled this east, west, north, south. They could have carried this cult everywhere with them. Why a necropolis? A necropolis just basically means city of the dead. That ties directly back to the Eleusinian Mysteries, which were a graveyard death cult. And the beer Mirorescu was seeking was a graveyard beer. Now, this is not to be confused with death cults a la Jim Jones, David Koresh, Marshall Applewhite. The ancient death cults, the ones who were consuming the ergotized beer in cemeteries or necropoli, were not seeking to die, die. They didn't want to, like, drop dead right then. They were seeking ultimate knowledge and communication with their ancestors. They were seeking the meaning behind the Greeks saying, quote, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die the hell does that mean, right? I and mean, that seems rather cryptic. Well, Miro actually opens his book explaining that, starting with Johns Hopkins and their studies on the use of psychedelics on patients with terminal cancer. And a whopping 75% of them rated among the top five most influential experiences of their lives. Basically, the, the optimal conditions terminal cancer is not an optimal condition, but the, the researcher at Johns Hopkins, you know, made a very special musical playlist. It's designed to work well with psychedelics and, you know, make sure they're relaxed, they're in comfy chairs, and sent them on a trip. And that's the optimal conditions. And it virtually guarantees a good trip. I remember from last year's book, the psychedelic handbook, a bad trip is a negative side effect. So that's something to be aware of if you do want to experiment with psychedelics. A bad trip is a negative side effect. Um, but happily, they all reported good trips, the Johns Hopkins patients, and that their fear of death had been erased. They reported feeling more open, more kind, more forgiving. One of the doctors who oversaw the study, Dr. Anthony Bosses, reported that participants came away with, quote, the newfound knowledge that consciousness survives bodily death, that we are not only our bodies, it has been described as a transcendence of past, present, and future. The insight that we are not bound by the material world is a powerful one. It is psychologically existentially, and spiritually liberating I read the when I read this book when i when I read any descriptions of people who who have gone on psychedelic trips, I become more and more convinced that that Robert Heinlein's stranger in a strange land like he based Martian culture off of an acid trip he has to have he has to have the way he described it it just jives with that i'm I'm like positive like if I could If he were alive, I would ask him, did you base this off of an LSD trip? Because it certainly sounds like it. Back to this book. So the ancients may have been practicing this this religion that allowed them to communicate with their ancestors since they were hunters-gatherers. And we're just trying to contact the other side to understand that we're all connected outside of time and space. Why is it called a death cult? Because the Illusinian Mysteries, when they started, were a cult- in worship of Demeter and Persephone you know, Persephone queen of the dead I gotta wonder if Lore Olympus is going to address this elephant in the room based on you know archaeological evidence that yes, they were in fact drinking ergotized beer the ancients weren't trying to die they were trying to contact their deceased loved ones so that they could communicate with them and make plans to meet on the other side basically Hence the name Death Cult. Now, at some point in time, around the rise of Dionysius as a popular god, they shifted from ergotized beer to wine as a sacred drink. And this is important for the rest of the book and kind of the introduction of the bad guy, so bear with me. The Dionysian mysteries were also female-centered, as in the women were the keepers of the keys, the brewmasters and mixmasters who created the sacred beverage that would throw everyone into a divine frenzy. And one of Greece's most famous playwrights, Euripides, wrote in, wrote in the Bacchae in 405 BC, quote, "'Two things are chief among mortals, young man. The goddess Demeter, she is Mother Earth, but call her either name you like, nourishes mortals with dry food. But he who came next, a son of Semele,' meaning Dionysius, discovered as its counterpart the drink that flows from the great cluster and introduced it to mortals. It is this that frees the trouble-laden mortals from their pain.' When they fill themselves with the juice of the vine, this that gives sleep to one, to make one forget the day's troubles. There is no other treatment for misery. Himself a god, he is poured out in libations to the gods. Except the translation is wrong. As Mirarescu points out, it's not treatment for misery. The word in the original play is pharmakon, meaning drugs. It's also interesting to note that wine is wine, drugs are drug in Greece. You know, we know pharmakon. The original, the, the word alcohol work, hold on, typo. The word alcohol did not exist in Greek. Alcohol is actually an Arabic word. So the very deliberate use of the word pharmakon should be recognized. But it's always mistranslated. Although it is interesting to note, just as an aside here, and something again we learned from last year's book on psychedelics, that the treatment for misery... Is accurate in a way in that people who are prescribed use of psychedelics prescribed by a doctor and there's very few that are actually approved on the on the uh, DEA's list for, for prescription medication, but like ketamine has been used to treat depression, MD you know ecstasy has been used to depre- treat t- PTSD. It's a good it's a good cocktail, so. It actually is a treatment for misery, but that's not the word. That's not the way the word should have been translated from the ancient Greek. So why would it be mistranslated consistently? Well, time to introduce the bad guy of this mystery: the Catholic Church. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I saw that one coming, honestly. See, as mentioned above, women were the keepers of knowledge in the mystery religions. Women knew the recipes, did not write them down, because they were mysteries, and secret knowledge is meant to be kept secret, and you can't really keep it secret if you write it down for somebody to steal and run away with. But the church wasn't all bad. It really wasn't. There was at least one honest apostle whose book is one of the big four. I mean, it's included in basically every Bible you're ever going to find. St. John. The book of John differs in some pretty significant ways from the other three what Peter, Paul, and Luke, I think. Not Christian, I'm not going to swear to that. I think it was Peter, Paul, and Luke were the other ones. John is the only one who says Mary Magdalene was the first to see Jesus on the resurrection. Uh, The other books say Jesus appeared to a group of women which included Mary Magdalene, but John says it was Mary Magdalene alone. John is the only one who seems to think that women could and should be priests because women know how to make the Blessed Sacrament, a.k.a. the Eucharist. there it is. This is where the book veers off from seeking additional proof, but where this book, The Immortality Key, veers off from seeking additional proof of Rockwasson and Hoffman's theory on the Eleusinian mysteries and starts searching for proof of the pagan continuity hypothesis. He does a pretty credible job of detailing how Dionysius was converted to the new religion, starting with Rome. Um, While eventually the Catholic Church will be the bad guy of this tale, it actually does start with the Roman Caesars. Uh, see, while men could not be made the keepers of the knowledge of how to make the sacred wine, they could be inducted into the Dionysian Mysteries. But the priestesses would not accept any male over the age of 20. So instead of joining the military and becoming good Roman soldiers, uh, an alarming number of them, alarming to the Senate in Rome at least, an alarming number of young men were running off to join this women-led cult. So women were actually a power to contend with in Rome. So Rome started by making the bacchanalia illegal and driving it literally underground, literally. So it starts with Rome. Rome started the suppression of women's equality, and the church handily finished it off. So we got Jesus is born, and his credo started spreading west to Rome and Greece, because and, uh, he was born in Nazareth, right? Which is Jesus and Nazareth or born in Bethlehem, I guess, which is not Rome or Greece. Um, John took the opportunity to start converting women. Basically saying, look, it's the same thing. Dionysius was born a god. Jesus is the son of God. Both use wine as part of their sacrament. There are other similar, similarities in the stories which are detailed in the book. I feel like my recap is getting a little long here. I'm already at 24 minutes, so I'm going to just kind of stop there and get, get, get to the meat of it here. But John advised the women that they can and should be priestesses of the new god, and to ensure the mystery survived the Roman purges, the women should teach the drink to as many women as possible so that all women can be priestesses in their own homes. Basically, it took this from the elite 1% of you know, the, the women priestesses and the people who you know, joined the cult and made it common to the masses, spread it out to the 99% of us who had no opinion one way or the other. And, uh, and it worked. All right. the, the worship of the new son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, Worked and it took 300 years for Christianity to emerge as the dominant religion. It eventually became legal under Emperor Constantine in the early fourth century, becoming the state religion under Emperor Theodosius I in 380. Now, interestingly enough, I've read another book about the importance of both Greece and Christianity to Western traditions, and that was Ben Shapiro's book that I read way back in 2021. And uh, he made the argument that what caused the spread of Christianity was um, the end of infanticide, basically, that that the new religion, Christianity, forbade women from killing their children. And and this is not an either-or proposition, right? Both could be true, both that the women were able to create their own Eucharist and that the new God dictated they stopped killing their children. Both could be true. I think that that both likely are true because it's very hard for a woman to carry a child nine months and then want to immediately kill it as soon as it's born, right? You mean, you wait until they're teenagers and complete assholes before you want to kill them. But I think this adds a credible step to how Christianity was so readily accepted and spread because the women were doing it at home, both as a means to keep their children alive and as a means to spread the face of God because when you're under the influence of LSD, you literally see God. I mean, like, they were able to deliver on the promise of immortality and seeing God's face with this LSD-laced wine. So what comes next? Well, the church had itself a problem because those women refused to give up the recipe for the sacred wine. All right? This, that, that secrecy was long instilled in them. Generation to generation, this is our secret. This is our knowledge. And women aren't, weren't stupid back then, all right? I know, again, very easy to think, oh, they're easily cowed. The men ran everything. The patriarchy. Damn the patriarchy. But in reality, this is something, this is the little bit of power that women had. Why would they just blindly give that up? Because they were ordered to. All right? When that secrecy is instilled in you that deep, you hold it. You hold it tight, man. And they did. They refused to give up that secret. And uh, that's a problem. Because they're not giving up the secret for the sacred wine. And the church only allows men to become priests. Now, the book of John initially ends with Mary Magdalene being specifically instructed by herself to carry the message that Jesus had risen from the dead. A later copyist added an additional final chapter indicating Jesus also appeared to Peter, the uh, first pope incidentally, along with other male disciples instructing them to feed my lambs for the rest of human history. So John's story ends with Mary Magdalene. Somebody else added an addendum blessing Peter as the first pope. And now we're at an impasse. Only men can legally perform the Eucharist because only men can become priests in the new faith. But when women perform the Eucharist at home, they can actually deliver on the promise to see God. At church, with the men in charge, it's all show. At home, with the women in charge, it's the real deal. You're actually seeing God when you have the Eucharist at home. Oh my God. i see God with his cocktail. Jesus. Does the church reevaluate its stance? allowing women equal access and opportunity within the largest and fastest growing religious movement on the planet? Or does the church implement the first and longest running war on drugs? What do you think happened? If you guess that the church went on a 1500 year killing spree, murdering approximately 45,000 women over the span of history on charges of witchcraft, you would be correct. Uh, Miroesco points out it's no coincidence that women were usually murdered in mother-daughter pairs. Because who else is the leader of a family going to pass down that sacred knowledge to other than her daughter? You know, the other one who's allowed to have this knowledge. He does spend a significant portion of time talking about, and I didn't write it in here. But now i got to look it up because I'm like fascinated by this. I, I want to know more. What was his name? Giordano Bruno. Giordano Bruno was an Italian philosopher and poet who was born in 1548 in Italy and he died February 17, 1600 by being burned at the stake for heresy. His heresy is that he managed to recreate the sacred drinks and called bullshit on the Eucharist and the, uh, the Rome, took, Rome took exception to that. The Pope was like, no, you don't get to call the Eucharist bullshit. We're going to burn you at the stake for heresy. Galileo gets all the love in school. I remember learning about Galileo and how he was persecuted and jailed for the rest of his life for saying that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. The reason the author, Mirarescu is so sure that Bruno did find the sacred recipe is that Bruno, he essentially predicted the multiverse. Like 500 years ago, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, he also predicted that there were other planets out there that would be habitable to human life, which NASA confirmed in like 1995. So 500 years, no, 400 years ahead of schedule. He was he, he saw this off of visions that he'd had that he then used to decry the church as being bullshit. And uh, yeah, he was he was excommunicated and then executed for that. Uh, they burn him at the stake. And the reason the author focused on him rather than women is that women weren't weren't publicly tried in that way. Bruno was not somebody the church could just sweep under the rug. They don't talk about Bruno. Um the church has deliberately lost the Bruno file a couple of times, although it's also been found a couple of times. And uh, that's how we know about him. Now, Muraresco knows that he hasn't quite found the smoking gun that will push the pagan continuity hypothesis into being full theory. I I think he's still working on it, which is interesting because he is Catholic. And in fact, his upbringing made him uniquely suited to this quest for truth. Um, he went to school where he was able to learn about ancient Greece, uh, ancient Greek and Latin. Excuse me, he didn't just learn about ancient Greece, he learned about like literal language, ancient Greek and Latin. He, re- he learned multiple languages. I feel like he speaks Italian and French. Um, he received his undergraduate degree in the classics, like a true blue classical liberal education like our forefathers would have received. Then he went to law school. And he does that full time while researching the ancient death cults and the religion with no name, which he believes has been in operation for more than 10,000 years. So the Eleusinian Mysteries is like one name, but realistically it's no name because it's been going on for so long. And while he knows that he lacks that smoking gun that would secure him a criminal conviction, I I feel like he's shown a preponderance of evidence here. Um, I don't doubt the proof exists. The, The Vatican City has like 53 miles of vaults and libraries underneath underground that are owned so wholly by the church and closed off to the public like you have to jump through ridiculous hoops to get access to files which hoops he managed to jump through and gain some access and his um, afterward indicates he's still working on it so there's hope for part two for the immortality key i quite enjoyed this book it was completely fascinating and mirorescu lays out his research in a compelling and believable manner Uh, If I were a jury on a civil trial and he was the plaintiff's attorney representing women throughout history against the church in Rome, I'd find for the plaintiffs. And I would ask the judge to order the church to open the archives for further research. And it won't happen because Vatican City is technically a micronation operating under the relatively benign dictatorship of the sitting pope. But I'd love to see it. That's it for this week. If you like what you saw, don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you guys next Sunday.